Our third sermon on the series that is about backsliding. We looked firstly at the fact of backsliding in the Old and New Testaments, and then secondly, I looked at the uh, goal of the Christian life is progression to Christ-likeness, and that was the content of the second sermon, that that is the goal, to be moving forward more and more uh, to be like Christ and less and less like the old Adam. And then uh, today we're going to be looking at uh, what is called uh, backsliding, but more specifically the insidiousness of sin. So uh, that's the topic. And I, I'm going to take you back to Hebrews chapter 3, and we're going to read uh, a few verses just to reacquaint ourselves with uh, the passage, Hebrews chapter 3, beginning at verse 12, and we'll be looking at verse 12 and 13. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And we will uh, return to this context a little bit later, but let us pray. O Lord our God, we thank you for your word and ask as it is to us life, that it may be the life of Christ that dwells in our hearts as we understand more and more what is required of man, what we are to believe concerning God and how the Spirit may keep us in that hope and that expectation of your goal for us. Preserve us, we pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, some of you perhaps know the feeling of uh, going on a bike ride and uh, climbing a hill and the pain of that, but there is... A lot of joy after you've had a good climb in coasting downhill. Uh, you, you sort of feel like you've earned it. Uh, I suspect for the person whose mom or dad, you know, puts the bike in the car and drives the child uphill and lets the child coast downhill and then return them to the top of the hill, is missing out on some of the joys you have from working hard to get to a place where then you can relax. And cyclists use drifting to great advantage, actually, in bike races, especially as they go downhill. Now, the Christian life, sadly, does not allow for any drifting in this life. Uh, In the life to come, we might call it a bit of drifting because you will be uh, glorified, you will be without sin, you will be filled with the Spirit. It will feel like drifting. But there's actually not a time where you can say, ah, I'm just going to go downhill for a little while. And uh, I was reading D.A. Carson. I think it's one of his most well-known quotes, at least to me, in a book that he wrote for the love of God. And he says, people do not drift towards holiness. Apart from grace-driven effort, people do not gravitate toward godliness, prayer, and obedience to Scripture, faith, and delight in the Lord. It doesn't just happen. In fact, in our sinful drifting, what we tend to do is we dress up our 
actions or non-actions with false virtues. And uh, he highlights some of these things that we do. So we drift towards compromise and we call it tolerance. Or we drift towards disobedience and call it freedom. We drift towards superstition and call it faith. We cherish the indiscipline of lost self-control and call it relaxation. We slouch toward prayerlessness and delude ourselves into thinking we have escaped legalism. We slide towards godlessness and convince ourselves we have been liberated. Sin loves to drift away from God, always away from God. And as we move away from God, what tends to happen is the snowball effect of momentum. And momentum slowly but surely picks up. One of my favorite things to do as a kid when it snowed was to start with that little uh, snowball and roll it on the snow and see it develop. And you try to make the biggest snowman uh, possible and there would eventually be all of the dirt and all of the things from the bottom because you would roll it so often it would just turn into the grossest looking snowman ever. Nothing like on the movies. And I question now everything in life, especially those snowmen that I used to see. Well, your life of drifting, your life of allowing yourself to go in a direction quickly picks up momentum. Now, there are some things in the Christian life that I struggle with in terms of accepting from God. And I don't mean to say that I am disputing God and His righteous, inscrutable ways. I just struggle to accept. I struggle to understand why sometimes two people professing the name of Christ get married and one seems to be a Christian and one in the marriage, as a professing Christian, drifts away from that and it ultimately becomes a marriage of an unbeliever and a believer. I don't understand that. I don't understand how parents who are diligent and faithful with their children, who will admit to not being perfect, but nevertheless raise them in the fear and admonition of the Lord, have children who end up abandoning the faith, and sometimes many children abandoning the faith. And then sometimes you see parents who, they didn't do anything. They were lazy. They took things for granted, and one of their kids is gloriously converted. And you you do ask yourself these things, why does this happen? Another thing that I ask myself sometimes is, why doesn't God just make us more holy than we are? Why doesn't He just magically with such power make us so Christ-like and make it easier for us. Yes, we become a Christian and we say, oh, the grace of God, we're justified freely by His grace. But why not make us so holy that we don't have any temptations, that we don't want to do certain things? And maybe you say, well, He doesn't need to make us practically glorified, but certainly He could make us a little more than what we are. And I do struggle with why we remain so sinful even in our state of grace. Now the first point I want to make in regards to the insidiousness of sin is the personal aspect of this. We'll look at the personal and then the corporate. Now if you return back to Hebrews chapter 3, you will notice that the author has been writing to Christians at the beginning of chapter 3 verse 1, therefore holy 
brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling. He's writing to professing Christians. In that same chapter, after warning them and quoting Psalm 95, verse 12, take care, brothers, there again. So in case you thought, well, maybe he shifted from verse 1 now to referring to unbelievers. No, he's still recalling them brothers. He's assuming that they are Christians. But he also says, lest there be in any of you, in any of you, an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. You should take care. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, so that what? None of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Sin's work is deceitful, very times not obvious. And that's what makes sin so dangerous, is it isn't obvious. You don't all of a sudden, after a few days of drifting from the Lord, get a light above your bed that blasts red and an alarm going around saying, hang on now, you're drifting. You don't get those types of warnings. You don't get words from God who whispers into your ear that you need to be very careful now because the last few days you've ignored God. And this decline is a type of spiritual disease. Octavius Winslow said it may be advanced in the soul so secretly, so silently, and so unobservedly that the subject, the person involved, may have lost much ground, may have parted with many graces and much vigor, and may have been beguiled into an alarming state of spiritual barrenness and decay before even a suspicion of their real condition has been awakened in their mind. They can drift an extraordinary far way down the path. And this type of insidiousness of sin is like cancer. Those of you who know something about cancer, you usually just don't wake up and go, wow, I am ridden with cancer. I was feeling great my whole life, and now it's at a stage. Cancer has Uh, Well, they've stopped saying stages, but that's a medical issue. Uh, Cancer has obviously a way in which it begins its work slowly but surely. And sin is like that. It can go undetected in certain ways. And then all of a sudden someone is alarmed at what has become of themselves in a spiritual manner. That is to say, a person doesn't just suddenly wake up one day and say, oh, I don't have any faith. I've stopped believing. People who eventually stop believing, we can say that the rot started many months or many years before they publicly come out and say, I don't believe in God anymore. I don't have time for the church anymore. Just as when somebody commits a treacherous act of sin when somebody decides that they're going to cheat on their spouse or they're going to do something that is heinous and wicked, usually doesn't happen to a person who has been in close communion with God each day, praying, lead me not into temptation. Usually, that is a symptom of a problem that has been festering for many, many 
months, and sometimes years. So as sin does its work, our eyes are diverted from Christ, and we become slowly but surely desensitized to sin. Things that used to alarm you no longer alarm you. Things that you never used to look at or contemplate, you start to look at and contemplate, and you allow yourselves these so-called guilty pleasures, and your conscience isn't pricked as much as it once was. You perhaps start to watch TV shows or look at things that you never would have when you were walking closely with the Lord, but it's not as though you're alarmed by it. You sort of justify it, make excuses for it, and claim that you don't want to get trapped in a legalistic spirit. And it is gradual, but it is steady. Now, John Owen speaks about this in his commentary on Hebrews and actually makes the point that a lot of times when this type of rot breaks into the soul, it happens during a season of outward prosperity. Let me say that again. A season of outward prosperity Just as we naturally love to drift, we also love prosperity. We love good times. We love our successes. We love our victories. We love our moments of glory. But Owen says this, and it was really striking. He said, prosperity is a temptation, many temptations, and that because without eminent supplies of grace... It is apt to cast a soul into a frame and temper exposed to temptations. That unless you have magnificent supplies of grace, when you are in periods of prosperity, you will have many temptations. And these temptations provide the soul with fuel and food. Prosperity has killed it's ten thousands, whereas sufferings, it's hundreds. Prosperity will and can be, if it is permanent and perpetual, a very real danger to a Christian. And so we should not underestimate the care that God takes in each life of His children to make sure that they are never in a state of prosperity for too long. And that's His love. God is looking at you in this world. He's looking at us in this world. And He knows the dangers of this world. He knows the dangers of indwelling sin remaining in your soul. And so as a good father, not an overly indulgent father, He has so planned your life to allow for seasons where there is the opposite of outward prosperity, where there are what we call frowning providences. And behind every frowning providence, there is, as the hymn goes, a smiling face. So, prosperity. Have you uh, ever thought about someone's life and you wonder why do they always seem to get the part, get the position. Everything seems to come easy to them. They, they seem to have success after success that uh, life just goes swimmingly for them. And you become a little bit jealous and envious of the fact that some people just seem to be so successful in everything that they do. And everything seems to be right and well. That may not be God's blessing on their life. 
It may be, but it may not be. You don't really need to concern yourself with the outward prosperity of others, to be honest. You need to concern yourself with the fact that God will so order your life to keep you close to Him. And usually, though not exclusively, it will involve a degree of suffering. Now, what leads to these problems besides outward prosperity? Well, the context tells us, if you look at verse 19 of chapter 3, that those who drifted away, those who fell back, who did not enter the promised land, were unable to enter because of unbelief. The root of all personal incipient backsliding where sin works its way insidiously into our lives is through the channel of unbelief. There were two things that Jesus marveled at in the Gospels, and they were the following. He marveled at the faith of the Roman centurion, but he also marveled at the unbelief of his own people in Nazareth. He marvels at faith. He marvels at unbelief. And once we stop living by faith, we will necessarily begin to backslide. We will necessarily begin to drift. And unbelief attacks and weakens our graces. Unbelief is a fast runner, so to speak. And it takes you away from God. Remember, God and Christ know the power of unbelief upon the soul. And as I mentioned last week, on the road to Emmaus, Jesus is grieved by the unbelief of his disciples. O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe. But notice also, when he comes to Thomas, he chastises him for his unbelief. So going back to Hebrews, notice then, we take brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart. That's the root of it. Leading you to fall away from the living God. So what is the root of drifting from God? It is unbelief. It is affirmed in verse 19. It is explicitly said in verse 12. So what are we to do? Exhort one another every day as long as it is called today so that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So what is a counter to unbelief? What is a counter to backsliding? What is a counter to allowing sin to insidiously creep into your life? One of the counters offered here is to exhort one another daily. Now that may become a problem for some of us. It certainly, I think, has become a problem for the evangelical church that has relegated a lot of Christianity to the following. Going to church on Sunday for an hour and basically having quiet time and sometimes a group study. Am I against quiet time? No. Am I against a group study? No. Am I against going to church on the Lord's Day? No. But what I am against is those things being absolutized and Christians losing a context in which they can be exhorted. 
So what is it about our lives that allows us to ever be exhorted? And that can also be a positive thing in terms of encouragement. It doesn't have to be negative. But the point is, what is there in our day-to-day living that allows for this to take place so that the opposite does not take place? What Christians do you have in your life that would ever actually exhort you? Think of right now, just in your mind, three or four people who you think would actually rebuke you or encourage you or instruct you or do something that is going to help you from drifting away. Someone who would actually have the type of relationship with you so that if they saw certain patterns, they could come to you. And if you can't think of anyone, that's a problem. That is a problem. And so sin begins to take root in our lives because other people aren't in our lives. People in your lives actually are the means that God uses to keep sin from gaining the victory. And so we can become deceived about our spiritual estate because we're living our own Christianity. Our own Christianity where we walk into church on Sunday, manage to behave ourselves for a little while, go back away, return the next week, and there's really no compass so that we might know whether we are drifting or not. One of the easiest things to do in the Christian life is to just simply attend church. What is hard is to take the reality of Lord's Day worship and work that out every day in your life. And so we can be deceived. Sin deceives us. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. My favorite Stephen Charnock stated that nothing is so natural as heart deceit and presumptuous confidence. Self-flattery is one of the strongest branches which grows upon the pride of nature. Think of the pride of the trunk of the tree and this massive branch coming out. That branch is self-flattery that comes from pride. How vain is it to fancy to yourselves a fitness for heaven while there is only a preparation for hell? We have to believe. We have to be exhorted. Deceitfulness and self-deceit comes in when you are living an overly individualistic life. And nothing about the Christian faith can make sense in the New Testament in terms of an overly individualistic outlook. You could read the New Testament and try to make it a personal between you and God Christianity and you will not get very far. But you also need faith. And faith is like Samson's hair on the Christian. That was Spurgeon, by the way. He says, cut it off and you may put out his eyes and he can do nothing. That is what faith is. Now, before we move to some application, I do want to make a point about the fact that there is such a thing as incipient corporate declension. So not only do individuals decline, but Groups of individuals decline. And this is one of the great mysteries because if you think about it, the apostles planted churches. 
They planted churches. You could say, well, we had Doug, you know, good guy, but come on. And then you could go to another church and say, well, you know, these the apostles planted churches. And no sooner had they planted these churches that in Corinth they were getting up to all sorts of trouble. Paul in Corinth, Paul in Galatia has to write to them and basically say, listen, if you're going to get circumcised, Christ is of no value to you. And he doesn't say to these three people in the church at Galatia. He doesn't just say, well, you guys are all generally good, but there's these two people here that are causing a lot of trouble. It is written to the church, to the church in Laodicea. Notice that they have a deceitful heart that has led to self-flattery. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered. There, outward prosperity, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Outward prosperity, self-deceit, and what does Jesus do? He chastises the entire church. Corinth, Galatia. And so should we not be surprised that very often entire churches and denominations begin to slide. Denominations and churches don't go from faithful gospel preaching that leads to exhortation, that leads to prayer, that leads to uh, looking to the sacraments in Christ, and then the next week in a total slide of liberalism. It doesn't happen like that. It slowly but surely creeps in through the cunning ways of Satan. And usually what happens is that Satan goes after not you, first and foremost. What would be the best way to go to the preachers, to get them to soften their message, to get them to doubt their message, to get them to take off the rougher edges that sometimes aren't nice to preach about. And slowly but surely, people start to get a new diet. And guess what? They become used to that diet. That's the same thing with food. You go off sugar for a while, and guess what? You stop craving sugar. I remember doing dry January once, and you know, the first speaking of wine, uh, you go off the first week or so, you, you, you're a little agitated at times with people, you know? My wife's singing and making merry through the house and saying, oh, you know, no, thank you, Thomas, for picking that up, and I'm walking around going, hey, what's wrong with everybody? Uh, that's almost what it comes to. But then by about January 15th, 16th, all of a sudden, you just get used to it. And then by the time it's the end of January, you're not even craving you know, a, a drink at night to you know, help you feel merry and glad and obedience to the Psalms. It's the same with sugar. <laughs> it's the same with many things. But tragically, it's also the same with people who sit under a watered-down gospel, who sit down under the word where it's not so much what they say, but what they fail to say. And they get used to it, and they don't know. And all the while, Satan has been making his moves upon the pastor to get to the congregation. In a certain sense, it wouldn't really matter to the state of corporate declension in this church if one of you were to just become a syrupy liberal who believed everything the news said. It would be tragic, but it wouldn't necessarily affect the church like it would with the preacher. And that's 
what Satan does. And that's why denominations then start to drift and people aren't even aware. There are people who go to these liberal denominations. Christ is not preached. The law of God is not preached. And they think all is well. All is good. They smile. They give a little bit of money. They do a little bit of this. And they think all is well. They cry peace, peace when there is no peace. And it happens to churches and denominations. It happens to individuals. Well, I just want to close with one or two points of application. And the first is this. How then did God keep our Lord from backsliding? Remember, one of the principles, at least I think, of good theology is always to locate how God treats His own Son when you're looking at how He's going to treat His other sons. How did He keep Christ from drifting even for a second, for allowing unbelief to creep up in his heart. And as you read on in Hebrews, just a page over, you get to chapter 5. And in verse 7, we read, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Now, what type of life do you think Jesus led that he had to offer up prayers with loud cries and tears? What type of life have you lived that has brought you to a time in prayer where there have been loud cries and tears? Not all of your prayers are the same. Will you admit that? Will you admit that sometimes it's just a happy blessing before a meal? Sometimes it's a short prayer. But then sometimes there's a type of prayer where you don't even know what to say. That you can barely get words out of your mouth. That sometimes the sighs and the groans are more eloquent than the actual words that you're saying. What brings about loud cries and tears? If you keep on reading, Although he was a son, and although you are a child of God, he learned obedience through what he suffered. How did he not drift? How did he not allow the root of unbelief to creep into his life? He learned obedience. The Son of God learned obedience through what he suffered. The man of sorrows was a man of suffering. And he was kept from outward prosperity. That's the point. Look at Job. He had outward prosperity, but he also had a lot of outward suffering and inward suffering. Look at David. How could David write all of these Psalms? Many of them come from his sufferings. Not all of them, but many of them come from his sufferings. Look at Moses, look at Daniel, look at those saints through the ages that God has blessed and the sufferings. You look at John Calvin and the gifts that God gave to him in the time of the Reformation. John Calvin sometimes is sitting at his desk with several types of maladies and diseases. There was times when he had to get on a horse to try and pass a kidney stone. I'm not sure whether that's a medically astute thing to do. God put many of his servants through incredible trials to keep them, 
to preserve them. In fact, a lot of times, the greater the gifts God gives to a person, to a man or a woman, will often be accompanied if he loves them with greater degrees of suffering. And nowhere is that more the case than with our Lord. Jesus lived by faith, but he was also one who was not indulged by the Father. Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He was asked to pay a tax and had to perform a miracle because he was not one of massive wealth. He had so many different types of sufferings. What was the reason for that? It was to keep him on the path that would lead him to the cross. Not a life where he thought, ah, three years of ministry, and then it'll be bad at the end. It was suffering from the moment he began his ministry so that at the end he was actually prepared to go through with his suffering. And that's a remarkable thing. People tell me they they want to go into the ministry I don't know. What does one say to such fools? You are either mad or you are either called. Or you're both. But the point is, God has to keep us just as he kept Christ by living by faith. And how are we kept living by faith? It's easy to make a pious platitude. Oh, the Christian life is a life of faith. We must live by faith. How is it that you live by faith? You only live by faith if you're given a reason to live by faith. You've got to have reasons to trust God. You've got to have reasons to want to look to God. And God needs to give us then all of those other reasons for our faith to cling hold to, for our faith to work itself out. If we didn't have those things, our faith wouldn't be really meaningful, would it? But that's what makes the Christian life so difficult is that it is a life of faith. And so when we are free from distresses, anxieties, sufferings, we tend to slip. We tend to slip. And I think we can all say God has been so merciful towards us that he doesn't usually with us pound us every day. But he also doesn't let us go years without trials. He knows how often and how many. He also knows how severe. He knows what you can't handle and gives that to you so that you will then live by faith. Not what you can handle. He doesn't say, oh, there's Mark. I'll give him what he can handle. That'll be good for Mark. Because then Mark will say, I can handle this. You see? He says, oh, there's Mark. There's the rest of you. I'll give them what they can't handle so that they may learn not to rely upon the flesh or the wisdom of man or money or power, but upon God. And so sin will creep in, but God. Unbelief will creep in, but God. Deceitful ways will creep in, but God. And so this is a way for us to reevaluate everything about our lives, maybe not only what has happened to us in the past, but going forward into the future, you may be able to look back and say, this is God keeping me. 
not harming me. This is God blessing me, not cursing me. This is God loving me, not hating me. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank you for the warnings of a deceitful, unbelieving heart that can creep in, and yet we thank you for the solution which is found in exhortation. Exhortation for the sake of Christ and because we love Christ. And we thank you for faith which keeps us looking to God and Christ. And so we thank you that as we have opportunity that events will happen, trials will happen, circumstances that will work our faith and work our faith so gloriously that we are kept on the path that leads to life and not the one that leads to death. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen.